Well, hello, Harvest Community Church. Welcome to Harvest Online and live if you're watching now from your living room or your car or wherever you watch church on your phone, on your television, on your iPad, on your computer. Welcome and uh, let's take some time to worship God through His Word. Hopefully you just worship in song and now we worship God through His Word. Um, so we're, we're in Mark chapter 10 Verse 32 to 34, verse 32, 33, 34, just three verses today, but that'll be more than enough. Let's start. Verse 32, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. See, if two, two reactions, amazed and afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death. They will deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after Three days he will arise. That's our text. So, so um, it, it, it's uh, Jesus talking about his suffering and his death, which he did uh, several times before the time came, even though it seemed the apostles didn't really listen. Um, I want to make some observations of the text in no particular order. Ready? First, Jerusalem at Passover is their destination. Where are they going? They're going to Jerusalem, and the event is Passover. To travel to Jerusalem for Passover is an annual uh, occurrence for Jews. They travel from all over Israel. In fact, they travel from all over the world. They would travel from North Africa. They would travel from modern-day Turkey and modern-day Iraq, and uh, even as far as Spain and, and Italy, if they could get there, because uh, it's a big Jewish festival. Um, there are several festivals and several reasons to go to Jerusalem, um, but Passover is, is uh, a very important festival because it is where a lamb is sacrificed for the atonement of the sins of the nation. Because it, re it re reminds the people that when Moses left Egypt, God did a great miracle by having the angel of death come in and take out the firstborn of all Egypt, but not those who had taken an unblemished lamb and put the blood over their doorposts. Anyone in those homes, there would be no death. So they would come and celebrate every year since then in memory, and everyone, every family would bring a lamb, and they would, they would sacrifice it at the temple, or the priests would for them, and they would take the meat that was for them, and they would so eat it together, and that was the Passover festival. And the high priest that time, once a year, would go into the Holy of Holies inside the temple. You could only go into the Holy of Holies room one time a year, and he would offer a sacrifice of a lamb on behalf of the sins of the whole nation. So this was a big festival, and, and, and it wouldn't be unusual to travel down there. Now, with a couple of exceptions, Jesus did most of the ministry you read about in the Gospels not in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was to the south. Um, they would do it in Galilee, the northern region, most of his ministries. He was raised up there. Most of his apostles were from there. Most of his disciples, not all, were from there. He would make a trip down to Jerusalem from time to time, but most was around the Sea of Galilee and along the Jordan River um, and in the towns and villages around there. At this time, Going to Jerusalem is dicey because it's been three years that Jesus has been ministering. And in that time, the leaders of the Jews, who are religious people, they didn't have a secular government, uh, the leaders of the Jews are priests and scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees. They had already had enough time to examine Jesus. They've witnessed his ministry for three years. They heard about his ministry. They saw the effect and they had solidified their opinion. The opinion of the religious leaders was, this man must be crushed, destroyed, done away with, killed, anything we can do to get him off the scene because he's clearly not doing what we want and we are God's religious priests, they would have said. And he's 
also becoming very popular, and that's dangerous. It's not only dangerous to our power, it's dangerous because the Romans who own us these days, who are our oppressors, they might start killing us and oppressing us Jews because they don't like these crowds. It was a very politically tense time in Israel anyway. And the last thing you need is some guy saying he's Messiah and his followers coming around and then the Romans oppress all of us because of them. And so they knew and thought and believed and taught if anyone follows Jesus, they're wrong and Jesus needs to be destroyed. With this in mind, the, the disciples of Jesus, the apostles, all the ones who followed him, they knew going to Jerusalem was a, a frightening thing to do. Um, it wasn't a good thing to do. In other gospels, we see them counseling Jesus, saying things like, do you really want to go back there? Don't you know they're trying to kill you? Don't you know they're trying to kill us? Let's not do it. So Jesus is heading to Jerusalem, and, and uh, the apostles are, and the disciples who are with him, both male and female, they're nervous. They're nervous and afraid. And maybe some are excited, uh, expecting a fight or something, but mostly they're nervous. The second thing to note is that Jesus is leading them. The, the text makes it very clear that Jesus is leading them along the way because it says he was walking ahead of them. We don't see a lot of language like this in the Gospel of Mark, but here it's, it, Mark is making it clear that Jesus was the one pushing the crowd by, by walking uh, resolutely to the destination. Um, I'm going there. If you're following, come along. Now, he's fearless entering this danger. The, the text gives us two words to describe the emotions of those following him, amazed and fearful. <laughs> They're fearful, no doubt, for themselves. Uh, this could, we could be entering into a fight. We could be entering into some sort of uprising. We may win. We may lose. We may all die. Who knows? But it's, it's enough to make me afraid. But then you also had Jesus um, uh, resolutely going forward. And they're like, this dude's amazing. Um, uh, imagine a great group of people marching to a very populated city at a time when all these people are in the streets. Uh, it's not exactly like the kind of marches going on in our cities now because everyone's hiding in the house for some virus or whatever, but <laughs> this is packed streets and these people are going there and so they're nervous, but they're also amazed at Jesus. His great determination was amazing him. Now Jesus, of all people, knew what awaited him. We saw some of it. He just said, they're going to kill me and whatnot, but the apostles never caught that. The Bible's clear that they always were befuddled when he said that. They couldn't understand winning and losing at the same time. They knew he was Messiah, so he had to win the fight, but they couldn't understand him suffering and dying. So uh, that, none of that stuff came clear until after he rose from the dead. But Jesus knew he was walking right into suffering, and he did it anyway. He knew of all the indignities he was going to face and still there he went. Um, now there was a prophecy of the Messiah that had come out 700 years before this. God had spoken of Messiah through Isaiah. And in that prophecy, you see that same determination from the Messiah. Let's, let, let me show it to you. It's Isaiah chapter 50, verses 6 and 7. And here's Messiah speaking in the first person by prophecy. So this is about the Messiah who was to come. And here's what he says. I gave my back to those who strike. So when the Messiah comes, he, he's not taken uh, to be struck. He gives himself to be struck. And I gave my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. Now, I haven't had a beard much of my life, and uh, now that I have one, the last thing I want people to do is pull the hair out of it. I imagine that's very painful. But the Messiah came and he gave his cheek to that. He said, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. He, he went clear-eyed, head up, and let people abuse him and mock him. But the Lord helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Look at the attitude prophesied in Isaiah 56 and 7 of our Savior. I I, I have set my face like flint. I have purposely given my back, my cheek. I know I'm going to be in big trouble, but I did not bow. I went head up into that because I know my God will rescue me from shame. There's an irony there. How can you 
give your back and your face to mocking and beatings and still not be ashamed. That's one of the most shameful situations you can have, a whole crowd of people shaming you. But um, he didn't care. He, He didn't care about the cancel culture. You can't cancel Jesus. He just went right in and said, I'm not going to be put ashamed. How? Well, he knew he'd be raised from the dead and vindicated by God himself. He didn't care what man thought. But he, the, it said, I set my face like flint. Flint, you know, like a stone. There, and, and, and here we see that being fulfilled. That prophecy is being fulfilled in this text. Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem. And they're amazed at him. But he's resolute. I know exactly what I'm walking into. Let me prophesy it to you. And he said, when we get there, this is all going to happen to me. But I'm going. I'm going. There was, he was walking right into a buzzsaw but he didn't blink. Another observation about the text is Jesus um, gives a specific prophecy to just the 12. Um, So he's given this prophecy to just the 12. There's There's a large group of people, large group of disciples, both men and women followers of Jesus, but he pulls the 12 aside. The text is clear. He called the 12 to himself. He's like, hey, big shots, come here to me. I want to talk to you. And he listed to them the, a prophetic word. He's going to tell the future to them. Often a prophecy is hundreds of years in, uh, previous to the events. This one is uh, less than a week or about a week or so, right? <laughs> Whatever time it takes him to get to Jerusalem, then a week later all these things will happen. So this is a very immediate prophecy. I'm gonna, we're going to Jerusalem. Let me tell you what's going to happen. And I want to kind of chop it up in a scientific way here. Um, so that we can examine it. Uh, He lists seven indignities. (laughs) Seven things you don't want to happen to you and really one good thing. So here are the seven indignities that he lists. One, I will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes. I will be delivered. Uh, He uses the verb delivered or handed over, right? It's a a betrayal word. It's it's what I am going... (laughs) And so this is betrayal. Chief priests and scribes are the people who have determined to kill him. Now they're... The difficulty that the religious leaders have in taking Jesus is that he always has a big crowd of people very much on his side that are around him. And, and if you go into that big crowd of people and try to just take him, um, you're liable to start an insurrection, a riot, a fight. They will fight you. If you they're not going to let you take their leader from their midst. So what we know is going to happen is Judas is going to sell him out. He's going to go sneak off and make a deal with them, uh, with the, the leaders of the Jews, and say, okay, I'll, I can deliver him to you in a time and a place where he's alone. And there's no crowds, because I know this man. I know his habits. He's a friend of mine. And I'll lead you to him. So one of the things, Jesus doesn't give himself to the chief priests. The chief priests don't come and find him. Instead, he's delivered. He's handed over. What hurts like betrayal? Very few things. Perhaps there's some things, but emotionally betrayal by a friend is as bad as it gets. Second indignity is he's condemned to death. He says, I'm going to, they're going to condemn me to death. The, the sentence of death is put on him in a rigged trial. Uh, they use the mechanisms of justice allowed to them as Jews uh, and, and put a religious court together and they have false accusers and it's a rigged trial and when they're finished they say he needs to die. Now of course uh, they cannot kill him uh, because they're not in charge of their own nation otherwise they could. The Romans are in charge and the Romans don't want you just doing your own trials. You have to go through them. So that's the third indignity. The next thing he says I'll be handed over to the Gentiles. Handed over to the Gentiles again. Betrayal. This is the second betrayal. One night, two betrayals. Uh, The exact same verb is used. Again, he's delivered to the Gentiles. The the Gentiles do not, the Romans don't come and say, we want this guy, he's a troublemaker. Not at all. Instead, his nation, his people bring him. This is a, a huge betrayal because just as an individual Jew, Jews don't sell out Jews to non Jews, right? They just don't. The Jews are God's people. They stick together. This, this is uh, for the... If Judas's betrayal was bad, and it was, uh, to betray the Son of Man with a kiss, um, Israel's as leadership's betrayal was as bad, if not worse, because they took 
from their own chosen people. They took a chosen man who turns out to be a good chosen man and they deliver him to the pagans. They deliver him to the pagans. They betray him to the pagans, right? This, this is, um, consider in World War II, uh, if, if, if uh, the Jews, right, the, the rabbis took one of their Jewish people and turned him over to the Nazis and says, why don't you put him in the death camps, right? They would never do that. That would be, what a betrayal that would be, and that's exactly what they did. But this was supposed to happen. John in his gospel says, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. What he meant was, he came to his own nation to save the Jews, but the Jews didn't take him. Now, I want to be careful here, lest we misunderstand. At this point, all his followers are Jews. So not all the Jews. He was very popular with the nation. It wasn't the majority of people that turned him over. It was a small band of leaders and their rent-a-mob. Right? Sometimes I think people get this wrong. They, they say, well, look, the same people who cheered him as he came in the week before, are now crying, kill him. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's even close to true. He remained popular with the people. The people who didn't like him was the Renamob. And the powerful, powerful leaders can get people to do what they want. There's always some who will kiss up to them, right? So it was a small mob of very powerful people who turned him over and said, crucify him, crucify him, um, so don't, don't become anti-Semitic. The, when we say the Jews turned him over, not all the Jews, not all the Jews, just some of them. And God has always loved his people. Um, Jesus taught a parable when he had walked the earth before this, saying that a, a certain man had a, had a vineyard, and he, and he rented it out to some people that he trusted, and then he went away. And when he rented it out to these people, he said, just bring me my return. You know, work the vineyard and, and bring me my return. But the people... Uh, were lazy and, and thieves. They, they would steal the produce, and if they sold the produce, they would steal the product, they, the, the, month, the profit. They were bad people, and, and, and he sent people and said, please, give the master what's due him, and they wouldn't do it. So the, Jesus in this parable says, so the owner sent his son, and the workers of the vineyard, seeing the owner's son coming, determined to cast him out and kill him, Right? So Jesus gives this parable of a vineyard owner sending his son to his own people who cast out the son and kill him. Clearly, he is saying God owns the vineyard and the vineyard's Israel and the workers who are supposed to work the vineyard, when the son comes, they kill him because they don't want to rule over him and they, they cast him out. So that... He's handed over to the Gentiles. The fourth indignity is the Gentiles will mock him. <laughs> so you give them to the Romans, they, don't, they have less respect for him even because they're not even Jews. And they're like, why are you giving him to us? Well, what did he do wrong? Nothing. <laughs> well, why are you giving him to us? Well, he says he's the king. Oh, he's a king. He's a king, is he? So uh, they, you know, they, they, they put the robe on him and they laughed at him and they, they put a scepter in his hand, right? They gave him a, a staff or a scepter and said, oh, you're the king. Then they would take the scepter from him and smash him on the head with it and laugh at him. And, and, and they even would cover his eyes and say, oh, great prophet. And they'd punch him and say, you can't see me, but prophesy, who just punched you? And, they, and then he took a crown of thorns and they shoved it on his head and they, 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 they mocked him. So not only was he cast out, he was ridiculed. I mean, this is a friendless guy by the Romans. And then it says, then also the Gentiles will spit upon him. I think spit. Obviously, they actually spit upon him. But uh, with this goes their attitude of um, scorning him as trash. The sixth indignity was the Gentiles flogged him. Uh, the New American Standard says scourged him. In either case, uh, this is when the Roman soldiers would take a cat of nine tails, which sounds cool, sounds like a little kitty, but it's not a kitty, and it's not made out of cat's tails. It's actually made out of cow leather. And uh, so you got nine leather tails, if you will, on a whip. And uh, it's, it's an it's a instrument where the strength of the arm is everything. It's not one of those whip that's a long distance and snaps. It's, it's you just take the strength of your arm and you wrap it into someone's back. But, yeah, that would hurt, but they make it worse by putting sharp things into the, um, into the actual leather. 
like stones and whatnot, and perhaps glass if they have it. And so that when they hit, if it doesn't hurt enough, when they pull it, at least it'll rip the, the top layers of skin off, and that'll hurt. And uh, they would do that 39 times. It was always 39 times. Um, that's just their law. There's a reason for it. No need to go into it. So this is going to happen to them also. And finally, the seventh indignity said the Gentiles would kill him. So the Romans killed Jesus. There's a lot of arguments. Who killed Jesus? Was it the Jews or the Romans? And some people like to give the theological argument. Well, we all killed him <laughs> because he bore our sins. And in that sense, we did all kill him. But in actual killing goes, the Jews handed him over and the Romans did the killing. Make of that what you will. It's just the truth. So Jesus was stripped of his clothing finally, um, had to carry his cross, nailed hands and feet, um, and after he died, stabbed in the side just to make sure he was dead, and he died. Now, all this had to happen according to the scripture. There was a prophecy about this too. There was a prophecy about this too. This had to happen. Isaiah 53 said this of the Messiah who was to come. It says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So when he was suffering, the innocent one, the, the Lamb of God, he, he was bearing not his grief. In other words, he, deserved, he wasn't guilty. He didn't deserve scorn. He was the Lord of, of heaven. He deserved praise. Well, whose was he taking? He was taking our sorrows. Yet, we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. In other words, the, the followers of Jesus, when they saw this happening, they weren't going, oh, this is horrible, but it's for our good. Oh, we thank you, Jesus, for showing us your kindness. No, they're going, oh, my word, what's happening? Uh, people have, are getting him. God has, seems to have forgotten uh, the Savior. But, it says, <laughs> though we didn't know what was happening, that's the implication here, he was pierced for our transgression. 700 years before it happened, God put this into the Bible so that after he did it, he could show this was to fulfill the prophecy as a proof to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace or the punishment. Uh, it's important to understand that when God uh, uh, arranged for the death of Jesus at the hands of evil men, that he was being punished, chastised, for sin, even though he committed no sin. But the punisher is not the devil. The punisher is God. The devil engineered the evil act that brought him to the cross, but God was behind that too. I know, it's mysterious. The thing to catch here is mankind, every individual on the earth, has to answer to God for the sins you've done. You have to. Um, every man right now, everyone's fighting over do black lives matter or do all lives matter and, and uh, are all of us guilty of sin for being white or all of us guilty of this or all. And, and we're speaking as if people are collective, right? We're not. We're not, not in that sense. Not in that sense. Each of us goes to the pine box alone. Each of us has to face God alone. Each man will give an account of his words and his deeds and woman too and child too to God. And each one for every sin will be punished. And since none is without sin, all will be punished. Right? When it says that upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, it means that each individual who should be punished is not. Instead, Jesus is punished for them. Now, so that means for me, all the sins I've done or will do, for which I am solely accountable to God, the, my color of skin doesn't make me a sinner. <laughs> it's not white guilt. Um, I'm a sinner because I sin. And that's bad enough. <laughs> Trust me, I'm not justifying myself. I'm saying I'd go to hell. Um, because that's the punishment. You can't have a sinful creature live with God forever, can you? Of course not. You'd ruin God. God has no sin. So he cannot do that. So there's no way, even with one sin, I could survive before God. But I have way more than one. And so I need to be punished. So instead of punishing me, he placed it on Jesus. And this is the great story of the Bible. Right? John the Baptist looked at Jesus and said, Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Many people hear that phrase in Christian churches and have no idea what it means. 
but it's a Jewish idea. As the priest offered a Passover lamb, a pure unblemished firstborn son, I'm coming back to that text, by the way. It doesn't have to go away, but that's okay. Um, as, 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 he, as he offered his, the, the lamb in the Holy of Holies for the nation of Israel, so did God offer his son, the lamb of God, the true sacrifice. So he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, the text says, we are healed. Look at this. All we like sheep have gone astray. All we like sheep, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, as you see that, you might think, well, if he's laid on him the iniquity of us all, then we'll all be saved. Not so. Not so. Only those who are in him are saved. More on that in a second. Um, finally, after those seven indignities, we get, one, we get some good news. He says, three days later, the Son of Man uh, rises again. Let me see exactly how he puts that. He says, uh, and after three days, he will rise. He will rise from the dead. So even though we go through those seven indignities, this ends really well. The Son of Man rises again. Um, Three days later. So death was not the end of Jesus. Why? Here's the beautiful thing. The Bible actually says if the devil knew what was going to happen, he would not have put Jesus to death. He would not have been behind those evil people. Because here's the magic that happens. Uh, Yeah, he bore our sin when he died because he died. When he died, it had to do something. He wasn't paying for his own sin. But in the grave, no innocent soul can stay. And he's innocent. So he died for our sins. Therefore, my sins went to the grave with him. We call this the substitutionary atonement. Right? Atonement means payment for sin. Substitutionary means Jesus substituted himself for you and me. Right? So in the sense, I died on that cross even though I didn't have to go through the trial. Right? So all my sins died with him. But since he couldn't stay dead, he rose. And in his rising... Since for the first time in the history of everything, a human body rose from the dead, not resuscitated like Lazarus who would die again, but rose from the dead in a glorified form, transformed to never die. Since the one did it, he's still my substitute. Now if my substitute dies for my sin here, and therefore my sin dies, then my substitute rises I rise too. So, so now those who follow Jesus, believe in him, all their sins washed away. And when he returns, the resurrection of the dead. So this is what he's teaching. So Jesus revealed, let's call him back to our text now. We've analyzed the whole thing. It was kind of mechanical. Let's, let's come back to our text and then apply it, right? So to come back, just to summarize, Jesus is walking to Jerusalem, and he's, he's going to walk into the buzzsaw. All these people are following him. He pulls the 12 to him and says, 12, listen to me. I'm going to go there. It's going to be rough. They're going to beat me up. They're going to betray me. They're going to kill me. And then uh, I'm going to rise from the dead, okay? And they're like, uh, okay. But then they don't seem to get it, okay? And then away they go. What should we take away from this? Let me just give you a couple things. One, we must understand the importance of the death and resurrection of Jesus. We must understand the centrality. We must understand the brain. Give me another word. The the impact. It's not strong enough. The the all-importance of. That's not strong enough. The ultimate purpose of the incarnation of God. Incarnation means God took on flesh. So God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit are spirit forever. Then God the Father sends God the Son down and says take on a body. That's called incarnation. In meat. (laughs) God takes on meat, a meat body. And the, the ultimate purpose of Jesus walking the earth is to die and raise again. Let me put it in the negative. The ultimate purpose of the incarnation of God, Jesus taking on flesh, was not healing. Was not his marvelous teachings which changed the world. It was not the miracles he did. 
He did not come simply to be a very impressive man that you could put in stained glass and write books about who people who don't even believe in him can say, I don't believe in him, but dang, he was impressive. No, no. Because there is no salvation if God takes on flesh and simply heals men and women and children. There is no salvation if he simply walks on the water and shows his divinity by the things he does. There is no salvation if he simply teaches us the perfect truths of God. Satan knows the perfect truths of God, and he is not saved. God could have sent healers to heal. He'd healed through Moses sometimes. He'd healed through Elijah and Elisha sometimes. Not much, but some. There were some miracles. He could do miracles. He He doesn't need Jesus. He doesn't need to become man to teach. He had all these prophets who taught fairly well. He could get them to say whatever he wanted them to say. He didn't need Jesus for any of that. Now, the incarnation was about his cross. The life of Jesus was about the death of Jesus because only Jesus could die for sins. Why is there salvation in no one else? People think, well, Christians, you're so you think yours is the only way, as if all religions are the same, and we just say, nanny nanny boo boo, ours is better than yours. That's not it at all. You have a very nice religion. I'm sure a few things are, might be true. I don't know, because you steal them from God. But let's be very clear here. Let me talk about who couldn't die for your sins. Muhammad couldn't die for your sins because he was a sinner. Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormons, couldn't die for your sins because he was a sinner and he didn't know God, right? Um, No Hindu God, whether it's the rat God, the God with all the arms, or an elephant nose God, could die for your sins. Buddha couldn't die for your sins. Every founder of every religion, every single one, is a human and sinful and must answer to the creator God. Only Jesus is innocent and therefore qualified to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And ironically, he's not one of the big religious folks. He's from this little group of people called Jews. There's not that many of them. There's never been that many of them. Still today, there's only about 13 or 14 million of them. And that little gang, that little tiny gang, gets to have the God. Isn't that like God? He's the Lamb of God. They, they sacrificed lambs for centuries because God was showing them through that practice that he hates sin and that there needs to be a sacrifice. But a lamb, oh, foolish, foolish people if you think an actual lamb can die for your sins because a lamb is just an, an animal. No, you need a man. And Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Only Jesus could die for sins. Only Jesus could rise again. Any presentation of Jesus You see, if you learn Islam, they'll teach you Jesus as a prophet, and they'll say, we revere Jesus, right? If you go to Buddha, Buddhists, a lot of them will give a lot of credit to Jesus. He's a very enlightened one. People always want to make Jesus whatever they want. If you go to the Mormons, they will say, well, Jesus is, he is going to become a god. He became a god, just like you can become a god if you're a man. You women, sorry, stinks to be you. Um, Because they would say, as God, God the Father was once a man too, and there are a lot of gods and, and, and such foolishness. They all make room for Jesus. All the false religions do. But that's worthless. Jesus died for sin. He was God, and he was man, and he rose. That's the center. That's the heart of our faith. Paul, who wrote the greatest, most profound, most complicated theology of Jesus in the Bible, simplified his entire message like this. He said, I determined to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. So he centered on the cross. Do you? Is that where your theology is centered? Or is it on his teachings and behavior? Because it needs to be centered on the cross. See, the world would like us to turn this equation around. They would say, let's focus on his nice teachings. Let's focus on his good deeds. Let's not talk about the cross, <laughs> right? And there's so many uh, so-called Christian denominations that don't even believe in the cross as atonement. They, they're ashamed of the atonement of Christ. They say, we don't believe in this bloodiness. That, that, that's, God wouldn't punish one 
son for the others. That's, that's just wrong. But we believe he had all these nice teachings. No, that's, that's backwards. The cross is where the battle for the souls of man was fought and won. So salvation, because of that, this will take away your pride. If you, if you think you're all that in a bag of chips, well, that's an old saying. If you think, if you, think you can virtual signal to the world <laughs> by putting a black thing on your Instagram to show that you love black people or, or uh, if you are black, to, um, <laughs> you can virtual signal to make sure you, you say the right thing about LGBTQ or you can virtue signal by uh, giving to some kind of environmental movement, or you can virtue signal by putting rainbows all over your body, and you think, look how great I am. Salvation is not a work you can do. Because you, like me, are a sinner, and standing before God, we don't measure up. I don't care who you are. No, no man is better than another man. And while I'm talking about color, there, racism is stupid because there's only one race, human. We are all connected. No matter what color your skin, there is no equality issue. We're all equal. And we all sin, and we all need a savior because only he can do the work. What must you do to find him? You've got to surrender to him. A gift given is, <laughs> that's not received is useless. So I'm going to give you $100. Okay, I'm going to put it over here. Thank you. And then I leave it. It's not mine. That guy gave it to me, but it's not mine because I didn't go get it. Christ died for sins, but if you won't go and get it, you don't get it. You have to receive Jesus. He is the gift. He is the Lamb of God. When the people ate the Passover lamb, that very weekend that he died, the Jews had to eat the lamb. Right? You, the Passover didn't work in Egypt unless you put the food in your mouth. You had to eat the lamb. That's a symbol of receiving Christ. You cannot be with Jesus if you say, that's a very nice Jesus over there. Thank you for dying for sins. No, you have to consume him. I'm not talking about the bread and the wine. I am talking about something deeper. Your soul, you take him into you. He becomes your Lord and you follow him forever. Have you done that? If not, do it. Because if you do follow Jesus, you receive forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. I know, I took much longer on that than I expected, so let me hurry through the next two. Second, we must trust his future prophecies yet to be fulfilled. Now, if Jesus was prophesied throughout the Old Testament, there's so many prophecies I could show you, blow your mind, all right, (laughs) that the Messiah would come, and he did. And then if Jesus, while walking with his buddies, prophesied what's going to happen in a week, and it did, then any prophecies in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation that have not yet happened, they're still going to happen. The the, the apostles needed to trust what Jesus was telling them right then. Because when he rose, they would then remember, go, oh yeah, he told us this, and then they'd declare it. Well, listen, folks, if what God says is always true, then the things he's prophesied that have yet to happen are also true. Jesus prophesied his demise and resurrection. He prophesied the events also that would lead to his return. And therefore, we can be certain that some events are coming. The great tribulation, that time at the end that is worse than all other times. Some people think it's seven years. Some people think it's three and a half. I don't care if it's worse than any other time. I wish it was a second. But in any case, it's coming. That before his return, there will be signs in the heaven and the earth, wars and rumors of war, false Christ, a man of lawlessness and a time of lawlessness will rise. Great delusion will be poured out on the earth. The gospel will be shared with all the world and he will return. Christians, I find, for some reason, are running away from the return of Christ. Because I guess since the 70s, we've been inundated with, he's coming back, he's coming back, he's coming back. It's 2020s, he's not here. They're going, well, everyone thinks he's going to come back sometime. He is coming back sometime. And I don't know when, but it's closer than it used to be. And something tells me it may be closer than you think. Because Jesus said at a time uh, when you do not expect, the Son of Man will return. So believe the prophecies. Don't doubt his return. Live your life as if when he comes back, you are ready. 
Don't live your life as, if I can squeeze in 80 years of life here and then die before he comes back, how can I make it wealthy for me? Which many Christians do. Don't do that. Think, if he comes today, am I ready? Third, and this is related to the second, we must turn our face towards suffering and difficulties to come, confident in our God. This year started, 2020, with, us, with me preaching a four-part series, Staying Sane in a Deranged World. How to stay sane in a deranged world. And, and we thought it was crazy then. <laughs> we thought it was crazy in January. <laughs> no sooner had that, had that ended then things really went nuts, right? The coronavirus. Coronavirus is huge. It didn't just mess with your life. It, it's messed with the life of people all over the planet. Uh, all over the planet, and we still don't know what's going to come of this, we have crushed our economies. Boom! In a matter of weeks. Do you see that coming? I didn't see that coming. <laughs> we, we learned for reals China is trying to destroy America. Um, not just through viruses, but financially and other ways. Well, that's kind of scary. Um, we right now have rioting in our cities, right? <laughs> One cop did a very bad thing, and now several people have been killed for it. Lots of businesses destroyed. Could you imagine a business that had no business because of the coronavirus? Now they've lost their inventory because someone broke in. This is horrible. We have rioting in the streets. We have presidential politics, people taking sides. And if I could say something gently but strongly, we have Christians acting stupid on social media. Christians, do you think this is as bad as it gets? I hear, I don't have Facebook, and I don't want it, but I get general descriptions of what's happening. Nothing could discourage me more than to hear that Christians have given up loving one another so they can fight to the death over masks? Over masks? I would die for the name of Christ. I'd die for my family. I'd die for my nation. I'd die for my church. But if you're going to plant your flag on a hill, if you can't love now, why do you think the Bible everywhere, the apostles are always telling us, be tender-hearted towards one another, forgiving one another. If you can't, Stop judging one another on Facebook. Get rid of Facebook. What's wrong with you? You'd fight over masks? This is insane. Who cares? Love one another. But this is the world we live in. Who thought Christians would be fighting over masks? Like, like idiots. Like small, immature children. And... To top it all off, there are Asian murder hornets coming. That's actually my favorite. Well, can I tell you something, Christians? You ain't seen nothing yet. Back in 19, when I started preaching, I remember telling the congregation, our time, because of the internet, this isn't rocket science, whenever the ability to communicate speeds up, everything on the earth speeds up, right? You can follow it. When a nation learns a language, their commerce, their trade, and their outreach speeds up, their learning speeds up, and change speeds up, their government changes, just from learning language, how to, to write it, I mean, and how to make it portable. And then you had the printing press, and that shoved the whole nation, or the whole world, into the Renaissance. And the Reformation literally changed the world. And then you had the technological revolution, that changed the world. We have the stinking internet. You don't even need to look up things in a book. Any any person on the planet could pull out their smartphone and ask it any question and get facts from all over the world. Everyone's talking to each other. And so back in the 90s, I said to those people, we're going to see things no one's ever seen. And I meant it, but I didn't really think it would happen that fast. Next thing you know, we got 9-11. And today I would say, if you're alive today, within the next few decades, if you're alive you will see more change on this planet than the rest of human race before 1980 had ever seen put together. Right? We've had the fall of the Soviet Union, the rewriting of maps. We, you are going to see amazing things, many of them good, many of them wicked, because mankind is wicked. 
So if you, if you can't handle this level of stress in society, you're toast. It's time to buck up. Gird up your loins. Things are speeding up. Birth pains work like this. They start lighter and farther apart. But they, as they get closer to the birth, they grow in intensity and frequency. They get harder and closer together. And then comes the baby and the joy. Jesus said, that's what it's going to be like at the end times. He says it's going to be like a woman in labor. In case you didn't know it, the birth pangs are starting to come a little closer together and a little faster. And if you're living on this planet, and you want me to say, don't worry, vote the right way, and everything will be happy and hunky-dory, you're talking to the wrong guy. Because no, that's... First, common sense doesn't say it. Second, we have prophecies of the direction of mankind on the earth, and it's to exalt man, not God. So what should our reaction be? First, what it should not be, fear. It is not should be a time of fighting amongst each other, not be a time of worrying about our safety. Trouble always comes. There was trouble in the Roman Empire, there was trouble in the Greek Empire, there was trouble before that in the Persian Empire. There was trouble when there were just tribes fighting each other. There'll be trouble all the way to the end. But trouble always is finite. God placed you here now. Don't be afraid. You've heard in, in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We like those words. You know, we're, we're walking through the valley of the shadow of the death and we're not fearing evil. But what, do we actually ever believe you're going to end up in the valley of the shadow of death? Let me ask you another question. How did you get to the valley of the shadow of death? Because I don't think this refers simply to old age. How'd you get there? In the psalm, how did the little sheep the Lord is my shepherd. How'd that little lamb get into the valley of the shadow of death? Well, the Lord was his shepherd. The Lord, it says, leads his path in righteousness for his namesake. The Lord took him into the valley of the shadow of death. The Lord marched to Jerusalem knowing things were going to go nuts. And he said to his disciples and apostles, follow me. He didn't say, hey, go back to Galilee, hang out. I got to go die on a cross and it's going to be ugly. Call you when it's done. No, no. He says, come on. Come on. We're afraid. Don't be. I got this. <laughs> the shepherd leads the lamb into the valley of the shadow of death. That's how he got there. But his comfort isn't that the world is all what he wants it to be. His comfort is your rod and your staff. I know I got a shepherd who, who is moving me on the right path, guiding me through the minefield. <laughs> And he's got a staff to beat down whatever needs to be beat down that comes after me. My friends, Jesus set his face like flint, like a stone, and marched forward into the fray. But he didn't do it alone. He took a lot of people with him. After the resurrection of Jesus, he said to his apostles, go to the nations. And before that, he said, I'm going to send you out like sheep in the midst of wolves. And the apostles' lives were filled with joy, filled with victory, filled with success, and filled with persecutions, and filled with sorrows, and filled with pain, filled with martyrdom. He led them right into the valley of the shadow of death. A sheep among wolves. To be a disciple is to follow Jesus, expecting joy and expecting trouble. This isn't hard to figure out. Think of a soldier or think of a firefighter. A firefighter expects trouble, the worst kind of trouble, the trouble that kills property and people, including him or her, perhaps. But there's an expectation that that's why I, I'm here. 
I get to go fight. And that's what Jesus was teaching his people. Follow me. I'm not afraid. We're amazed. I know. I'm like Flint, baby. I got this thing. (laughs) It's not a time to shrink back. It's time to expect joy and trouble facing everything you see with hope. Nothing I've seen takes my hope away. Even when I'm discouraged by the world around me and by the way people are behaving, my hope goes nowhere and my confidence doesn't go anywhere. Why? Because I'm awesome? I'm not awesome. I'm no different than anybody else. Because I know in the Bible that it says faith is the victory that overcomes the world. And I have that. It says that, that Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. And if he's with Lo, he's with me too, even if my name is not Lo. That was a joke. I hope you got it. But I'm not afraid. We face the future with hope, confidence, and love. Concern for one another. Concern for people who hate us. Look, it's not a time to shrink back. It's our time to shine. Right? The fireman who runs, oh, there's a fire? I quit. The soldier says, oh, they're battling? I think I gotta go home. No, no, no. No, this is the time for you to do what you were called to do. Safety is God's business, not yours. If he leads you into the valley of the shadow of death, which he seems to be leading the world, run into the fray with a smile on your face and determination to do what your captain sent you to do. In Daniel 11 and 12, beautiful chapters. I know it's wild, it's prophetic, and some of the stuff may be hard to grasp, but read it. But Daniel 11 and 12 is awesome because it talks about the very end. When, all, when Antichrist is ultimately smashed, when the abomination of desolation comes, and it talks about the Christians at the very end of time. And by the way, I've got to stop here for a minute, and I'm going to try to say something firmly, but with sensitivity, which is, in other words, there are a lot of people, most people in the church, and I, it's fine, you can believe this if you want to, because I know the reason you do who believe that before the real trouble comes to earth, we'll be raptured out, right? You can be a member of Harvest and believe that. Most of the members of Harvest do believe that. I haven't asked. Probably most of the elders of Harvest do that. I do not believe that. And I would tell you not to believe it too. If you do believe it, I'm suggesting you change your mind. Now, we're Bible people, so I'll throw this challenge out there. Anyone who can show me in the Bible where that is, Okay, I'll change my mind. Any doctrine that we all hold to, we should be able to see it clearly in the Bible, right? I don't see it clearly in the Bible. I don't see it at all in the Bible. Do you? And the reason this matters is because thinking you're not going to be here for the worst part of it, for Antichrist, for all those things, can cause you to have a false sense of safety and a worldly mindset if you're not careful. Well, we won't be here for that. Thank God, we're going to get lifted up. You will be raptured when the Lord returns. You'll meet him in the air. The Bible says that clearly. It does not say he will secretly pick you up seven years before he comes back. If you can find it, and you don't have to be a theologian to find it. You shouldn't have to go to seminary to find it. Do you have to go to seminary to figure out that Jesus was born of a virgin? No, it's right there in Luke. Right? Do you have to go to seminary to know Jesus died for sins? No, it's right there in Isaiah. I showed it to you. It's right there in Romans. It's right there at the end of every gospel. It's easy to find. Well, then if we're going to be snuck out seven years before the trouble, should be no problem. Go look at your favorite teachers who teach it. Figure out how they teach it. Show it. And I think you're going to find it's not there. I know this because personally, I found it was not there when I was troubled by the doctor many years ago. It's not there. It's a relatively recent idea. started in the 1800s by a guy named Darby in the 1800s and put in the Schofield Reference Bible, which is a very popular teaching Bible, and that's where it took root. But it is not a majority Christian idea. It's not a biblical idea. You should expect that if you're in the end times, you may live till the second Jesus comes through the sky, picks up the Antichrist, and throws him into hell. Okay, hopefully I said that with enough respect to those who disagree. I don't mean to to step on you. I just... We need to be truth people. And the Bible is our arbiter on that one. So, let me go back. Daniel 11 and 12. 
is the end times. It actually shows Christians after the abomination of desolation, which Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation set up as in the prophet Daniel said, then know that the end is very near, right? So this is when the Antichrist reveals himself to be God to all the earth. He says, when you Christians see that, know that the end is near. He doesn't say, when you Christians see that, don't worry, you won't see it because you'll be in heaven. He says, when you see it, know it's near. And you know what, what we see there? God prophesies something that's true. There's a group of Christians. It doesn't say Christians. It says um, those who have insight, faithful people, let's call them, that are alive on the earth. They're there. We're there. If he comes in my lifetime, it's you maybe. You, you might be prophesied. You personally, listen to this, could be right here in Daniel eleven twelve. 12. Maybe I'm alive. Maybe I'm dead. Maybe some of the children are prophesied. Maybe it's me. I don't know. But there will be, Jesus once said, when the Son of Man returns, where there'll be, will there be faith? On, will he find faith on the earth? But he answers his own question in Daniel eleven twelve. 12. Yes. And, and it describes these faithful people. It says, those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. This is end time people specifically. He's not talking about people throughout time. Read it for yourself in context. That is not people who are shivering in their basement, eating their beans, hoping it doesn't get to them and waiting for the rapture. No, no. These are people who say, I'm a fireman. That's a fire. I'm going out and saving folks. I've set my face like flint to the future from 2020, and I am not afraid. Come what may, I am led through this valley of the shadow of death by a shepherd who's very strong and knows what he's doing. And if he put me here, he's got a reason for me here. And as long as he leaves breath in my body, I know he will guide me to do what he wants, and I will shine like the sun. There will be people, it says, shining like the brightness of the sky. They'll be there. It's prophesied. Let it be you. Let me show you a verse of these people. Daniel eleven thirty two. 32. He, and this is Antichrist, shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. So that'd be the bad guy. But then it says this. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Wow. The the New American Standard puts it like this. The people who know their God will display strength and take action. We won't just be going, oh, I hope I survive this. No, no. We'll be standing and, and these people are strong. These people aren't backing down. These people are facing hardship like Flint. These people aren't going on Instagram and saying, I just don't know if I can believe in a God who doesn't do this. They're not wimps. Quitting their little Christian churches saying, I used to be a pastor, but now I don't know if there's a God. And then all the people going, oh, we love you, brother. Love you, brother. Sure, I love you, but you're Judas. No, no, you're not the one who stands at the end. The one who stands at the end will display strength. But they don't just display strength. They take action, the verse says. They, don't, they think, how can I act in these times for the sake of the gospel, to shine like the brightness of the sun, to lead many to righteousness. Christian brothers and sisters, do not fear the future. Run to the battle. Set your face like flint towards the future. Every time new trouble comes, say, I'm going into that trouble. (laughs) I'm going to go right into it. Coronavirus, I'll do what I got to do to bring the kingdom in the middle of the coronavirus. Riding in the streets? Okay, fine. What do I got to do to bring the gospel when there's riding in the streets? Racial tension? Okay, I'm running right into that. What do I got to do? Chinese trying to steal all our technology? Good. How can I get those Chinese folks saved? I'm going right into that. Murder hornets? Well, I don't know what to do with those. (laughs) Keep laughing. Keep smiling. (laughs) You win this fight through Jesus, folks. I want you to know I love you all. This week we begin meeting in person for those who don't want to. You're you're watching me now. That's fine. No judgment. (laughs) All my love to you. Um, Hope to see you soon. But those meeting in person, I can't wait to see you. I love you all. Let me pray for you. 
Father in heaven, what a glorious promise you have made to us. What a glorious promise you have made to us that you will return. And between now and the time you return, you said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. So we know the end is victorious. We know we go with you into the end. We know you lead us right into the shadow of death and into this trouble, not away from it, because we are your firemen. We are your warriors. We are your lambs that you lead in love into the midst of wolves. And we trust you, our great shepherd, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.